This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Fans of Ferris Bueller's Day Off might remember the scene in the beginning of the film where Principal Rooney informs Ferris's mother that their son had been absent nine times. Nine times. Nine times. That semester. Nine times, he said, letting the number hang in the air and hammer home the possibility that their son may have actually been playing them for fools. Now, you all know the rest, and if you don't, watch the movie tonight. It's a classic. I'm not sure what point I'm trying to make here, other than the fact that when the Senate Judiciary Committee released its bombshell 394-page report yesterday, they outlined how the former president pressured the DOJ a stunning nine fucking times to undermine and ultimately overturn the election, of course, in his favor. Nine times. Nine times. A Senate report detailing nine times the then-president pressured top Justice Department officials to overturn President Biden's legitimate victory. That's no isolated incident or an example of a president thinking outside the box. It's the actions of a treasonous fucking shitbag in the act of sedition. There's also the fact that Trump, like Ferris Bueller, acted with such brazen impunity, knowing that no matter what he did, ultimately he would get away with it. The president was relentless. As soon as William Barr announced that he found no wholesale fraud in the election results and announced he was leaving, that was when the president of the United States decided to put full court pressure on the new acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen. And as I said before, he was relentless. When you look at the number of contacts, we're still waiting for even more evidence to come in on that subject. Uh, He was really pushing the Department of Justice to bend to his political will. And I will tell you, I just, uh, I don't think I'm overstating the case. We were a half step away from a full-blown constitutional crisis. Trump directly asked the Justice Department nine times, nine times, to undermine the election result, and his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, broke administration policy by pressuring a Justice Department lawyer to investigate claims of election fraud, according to the report which is based on witness interviews of top former Justice Department officials. It is shocking in an era when the blueprint for a coup is something that was described by Republican Adam Kinzinger and just about every detail that has become public since that label was slapped on it details a very meticulously plotted and planned coup attempt. This was the piece that the Justice Department was to carry out in that architecture And in the end, they refused. The Democratic-led committee also revealed that White House counsel Pat Cipollone threatened to quit in early January as Trump considered replacing then-acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen with Jeffrey Clark, a DOJ lawyer who supported election fraud conspiracies. At the start of the now infamous January 3rd Oval Office meeting, Rosen recounted Mr. Trump saying, One thing we know is you, Rosen, aren't going to do anything to overturn the election. On the other side during that meeting were the top leaders of the Justice Department who warned Trump that they and other senior officials would resign in mass if he followed through. According to others at the meeting, Cipollone indicated that he and his top deputy, Patrick F. Philbin, would also step down if Mr. Trump acted on his plan, which Cipollone referred to as a murder-suicide pact. 
Only near the end of this nearly three-hour meeting did Trump relent and agree to drop his threat. It was Cipollone who spoke up and said that he thought that this scenario and what they were trying to achieve was a murder-suicide pact and the president should not do it. The report also fleshes out the role Clark, a little-known Justice Department official who participated in multiple conversations with Trump about how to upend the election and who pushed his superiors to send Georgia officials a letter that falsely claimed the Justice Department had identified, and I quote, significant concerns that may have impacted the outcome of the election. These guys did not have much respect for Jeffrey Clark. This guy was kind of a nobody. He'd been put in to run the environment division for Trump, which obviously meant he was supposed to do nothing. Because of vacancies at the end of the term, he was only an acting civil division chief. And... It's a little hard to imagine that he cooked this up on his own or that he would tangle with Rosen and Donahue like this on his own. And he landed mighty quickly at a dark money shop called the New Civil Liberties Alliance. And I don't know who's paying him to be there, but I think there's a bigger story about what's behind this scheme. One school of thought is that this is an ambitious nobody who saw his moment, took a shot at it and got shot down by his peers. But an equally plausible scenario is that this guy was put up to it, that somebody drafted that complex letter involving areas of law in which he had no expertise for him to produce for Rosen and Donahue. And looking behind what took place at the Department of Justice, I think, is why this is only an interim report. We need to keep looking at those other uh, elements. After the eight-month investigation, the findings highlight the relentlessness of Trump and some of his top advisors as they fixated on using the Justice Department to prop up false conspiracies of election fraud. The committee report, the most comprehensive account so far of Trump's efforts to overturn the election, described his conduct as nothing short of an abuse of presidential power. This report, which we have brought to the attention of the public, as well as members of the committee, obviously, went into detail as to what happened during that two-week period of time. It was an incredible moment, which most Americans didn't even know was going on. We were a half-step away from a full-blown constitutional crisis. What followed? We know what followed. In a matter of three days, this present, former president, desperate in his situation, having failed in every court case, having failed to take over the Department of Justice, decided to take his cause to the streets. We saw it in the United States Capitol three days later on January 6th. The president turned loose a mob, a mob that was supposed to stop us from counting the electoral votes and electoral ballots. Former President Donald Trump would have shredded the Constitution to keep his office in the presidency. The rush of developments on just one day poses profound questions for Congress, the Biden administration, and potentially the courts, and follows other new evidence of Trump's anti-democratic conduct, including about a step-by-step -step plan drawn up by conservative lawyer for now then Vice President Mike Pence to subvert the constitutional process of certifying Biden's election win. A document came to light a few weeks ago called the Eastman memo, which was basically a blueprint prepared for Trump on how he could steal the election after he lost it in November 2020. It outlined a plan for overturning the election by claiming that seven states actually had competing state slates of electors, which, while not even remotely true, 
would have given Mike Pence the excuse to throw out those states and thus hand the election to Trump. But of course, the plan required election officials in those states to go along. Trump thought the ones who were Republican would. Most did not. And that's what he's been working on fixing ever since. One key issue concerns how far the select committee and the Justice Department are prepared to go to impose accountability on those involved, including the former president. Does the panel have the power and the steel to do so quickly to prevent Trump running out the clock for what could be a pliant GOP Congress after next fall's midterm elections? Would, for example, President Joe Biden's Attorney General Merrick Garland be ready to enforce any contempt referrals from Congress and bring the weight of the law against Trump allies who refuse to cooperate with the committees? There's nothing like the threat of going to prison until you cooperate to make reluctant witnesses spill it, come clean. And so the difference between this administration and the Trump administration is that Trump's Justice Department wasn't going to enforce these subpoenas from Congress. Biden's Justice Department has a very different posture. And so a lot of these witnesses are huffing and bluffing. We don't have to come, but make no mistake, the threat of prison will be a powerful incentive. Ultimately, the issue is about whether there's any legal or political remedy equal to the scale of Trump's transgressions, or perhaps more importantly, that might deter his relentless attempts to destroy his success's legitimacy and faith in an electoral system that reflected the will of a nation that wanted him gone from the Oval Office. Most people say, well, we've heard most of this story before, so what's the point of it? The point of it is that we were so close to a constitutional crisis at that moment that it bears continued investigation and disclosure. So the American people know that we should never be complacent when it comes to our rights as citizens and to our responsibilities to our Constitution. Some might argue that an unprecedented two impeachments represents the ultimate sanction in historic stain. But Trump's acquittal by Republicans in his first Senate trial only convinced him that he could abuse power with impunity. And his second acquittal, once he was out of office, did nothing to temper his corrosive claims of electoral fraud and is no deterrent as he builds an apparent new presidential campaign on the lie that the last election was corrupt and stolen. We are looking at an ongoing cover-up led by the Republican Party to keep the people of the United States from knowing what the hell happened in these terrible moments in which the President of the United States, for the first time in our history, tried to subvert a, a legal and free election, and now we are heading toward the next election in which these same forces are planning to subvert the election. So we are in a constitutional crisis. Accountability is critical for multiple reasons. The Capitol insurrection and Trump's multiple attempts to subvert the election in Washington and in the states ranks as the worst assault on the U.S. electoral system in U.S. history. Inflicting a price for such behavior is vital to stop such abuses from happening again and potentially could include new laws to bolster faith in elections. Recent escalations of Trump's attacks on bedrock democratic values and signals that he is planning a new White House bid 
prove that this threat to democratic governance is far from elapsed and is only getting worse. Because look toward the next election. Right. Look at what has happened already and look at the country itself. The most significant thing perhaps is not just the coup attempt and the coup by the President of the United States and the Republican Party going along with it, but almost half of the adults, adult voters in this country from all of the polls and what we saw in the last election are willing to go along with these lies. Yeah. So we are in a kind of civil war in this country. At the same time that Trump was trying to escape accountability, the GOP response to Thursday's Senate Judiciary Committee report from the majority Democrats again highlighted a trend that has enabled Trump's past abuses of power and that ensures he remains a viable political figure. In a dueling documents, Republicans on the committee presented a different interpretation of the facts contained in the majority's report. What the Republican Party is doing today is unprecedented in our history. Going along with subversion of the Constitution of the United States, this is not about a set of unknown facts. It's very clear to these people in the Republican Party what happened. They want to win and prevail in this civil war at any cost. And the cost to the country is something that we have not seen in this nation since 1860 to 65. That's the only period in our history we can look at as, as to when the forces of undemocratic, to say the least, but when the forces gathered to undermine our unity as a country, and what we stand for and who we are, we are in a similar period right now. Senator Charles E. Grassley, Republican of Iowa, echoed those sentiments on Thursday with the release of a report by committee Republicans, which called Mr. Trump's actions, and I quote, consistent with his responsibilities as president to faithfully execute the law and oversee the executive branch. In fact, the evidence shows that President Trump listened to his advisors and, and to their recommendations and that he followed those recommendations. Their actions are consistent with a party that blocked an independent September 11th style commission into the January 6th insurrection on Trump's command and that has consistently prioritized its political priorities and the need to appeal to the ex-president's supporters over its duty to democracy. The GOP document essentially argued that since Trump was prevented by advisors from following through on many of his schemes to subvert democracy and steal power, there is no case to answer. For instance, the then president didn't actually carry out his plan to replace acting attorney general Jeff Rosen with Clark, though not for the want of trying. None of these steps were taken because President Trump made the ultimate decision not to take those steps. At each of these critical decision points, the president asked his advisors for their candid views and their candid recommendations, and the president followed them. You have Senator Grassley's, you know, rebuttal from the GOP saying nothing to see in that meeting, you know, that Trump, oh, he listened to his senior advisors and followed their advice and recommendations. I mean, 
that's a that's a, that's an insane interpretation of an insane meeting which took place with the former president. Chuck Grassley was once a really honorable man with a terrific record uh, serving his party. Wow, that must have and, been a long time and ago. And it is a I long mean, time is... ago because what he is doing is a disgrace. This type of appeasement will only serve to embolden Trump in his efforts to subvert democratic norms. This may work for a GOP that desperately needs his MAGA base to turn out for future elections. But what they don't realize is that it shackles all of us to a ticking time bomb that threatens to blow up what's left of our electoral system as Trump and his fucking cronies undermine every last democratic norm. We all knew this to be true. But to see it plain as day, memorialized in a 394-page document, is something else entirely. We cannot let him get away with this shit anymore. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is Tristan Snell, the former New York Assistant Attorney General, famously led the civil prosecution in the Trump University case for the state of New York against the Trump Organization. The 2013 case found the Trump Organization guilty, forcing them to pay a whopping $25 million in restitution. Snell spent years scaling the walls of the Trump Organization, largely creating the playbook for defeating Donald Trump in court. Ultimately, he said, it's about the receipts, not the witnesses. To beat Trump, you need undisputable proof, a smoking gun, and that only comes from having the documents to prove it. Nowadays, Snell is the founder of Main Street Law and appears as a commentator on CNN and serves as a contributing writer for the Washington Post. His work as a lawyer and founder has been featured in a wide array of media outlets, from The New Yorker to The Atlantic to Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. He joins me today on Mea Culpa as the nation sits at the precipice of a full-blown fucking constitutional crisis. Whether or not our current attorney general has the fortitude to take down Donald Trump remains very much in question. Snell provided us with a roadmap for what to do next. So let's listen now to that conversation. So Tristan, yesterday, the Senate Judiciary Committee investigating Trump's interference with the 2020 election issued a bombshell 394-page report showing indisputably how former President Trump tried to overturn the election nine separate times. You know, a lot of people don't realize that, but it was nine separate times. Now, you wrote of the report, and I quote, Take the Senate Judiciary Committee report, turn it into an indictment against Donald Trump and Jeffrey Clark and anyone else they worked with. Impanel a grand jury. Do it now. Don't wait. Seriously. Now, can you do me a favor? Can you walk us through what you were most, you know, what were the most damning points in the report, in your opinion? Just the specificity of it. Like, yeah, like, like you said, Nine different instances. I mean, this is not a situation where, let me put it this way. You know, we think back to the whole thing with Ukraine 
and the first impeachment, <laughs> distinguished from the second impeachment. You know, that was, you know, trying to dissect one phone call and Trump was able to score some points by defending himself, saying that, you know, that he was being taken out of context and, and something, something. You know, and, and it was just really a lot of it was around that one call. There was other stuff, but there was really that one call was the focal point of attention. We have way, way more. This is not an accident. This was not a something taken out of context. It's not a misunderstanding. This was a very purposeful, deliberate, methodical campaign, not by somebody else behind the scenes as the mastermind either. This was Donald Trump personally going and twisting arms and trying to get people to work with him to get DOJ to say that the election was uh, should be called into question. Uh, so it's, it's the specificity and the comprehensiveness, the amount of detail, the number of attempts, the number of actions that he took over those couple of months. Uh, it, it's really damning. This isn't just one, one bit of language that he said that was taken out of context. This was a campaign to get DOJ on his side. And if you would... Again, with, with a little bit more specificity for my listeners, because when I make a statement that it's 394-page report, I mean, you're talking about right. the Mueller report yes. in terms of size. On top of that, we turn around and we say that there were nine separate times. Like, which one of those nine times, not that anyone is better or worse, like the Raffensperger, right. right? We need 17,000, exactly the number in order to be one vote greater. And yet, for some reason, they still haven't yet indicted him on this charge. What are, what are some of these nine that are really offensive to you more than the others, if it's I mean, even look, possible? It's, I really think that the, uh, you know, the, the meeting that they had where it was Rosen and Clark and Donahue and then basically saying that, you know, the, the key here word is just when, when Trump is saying just say that there was that there was fraud, not I think there was fraud and I want you to dig into it. It's saying no, I'm not saying there was the way that Trump's saying that it's not I'm not saying there was fraud, just say it was fraud. That's the part that, that I, that's the part that really like sticks out the most to me still um, is that it was just say it. it doesn't doesn't have to be true. I know it's not true. He doesn't say those things, but they're implied. Just say it. And then we'll take care of the rest. You know, me and the Republican congressman will take care of the rest. And that's where it then ties into this DOJ coup conspiracy, which which is really what it was, is a conspiracy to commit a coup, then ties into January 6th. So I think that's the one that really holds all of this together. And it's part of a larger narrative that I think we're going to see unfold in Congress over the coming weeks and months about exactly how January 6th came to be. But they were not just thinking of, oh, we're going to send a mob to the Capitol. It was that they were going to get DOJ to say that the whole thing should be called into question precisely because it would then sway some potential votes in Congress to not certify the election results and then send the mob in there to disrupt the whole proceeding. That was the it was a multi pronged, very deliberate attack on the election certification on Congress, on the Constitution. And so that's the one that still jumps out at me as. This is part of something way larger and that, you know, just say it was fraud. 
it, 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 that, that's the one that still just gets me. So the one that I think bothered me a little mm-hmm. more than the others was, um, and it was disclosed by the former acting attorney general, uh, Jeffrey Rosen, when he gave seven hours worth of testimony um, to the committee, whereby the statements that he made was that Mark Meadows, who was, of course, Trump's chief of staff, pressured Rosen on multiple occasions. And he wasn't sure if it was like five or six or seven, right, Um, to launch election fraud investigations, which, as we all know, violates this longstanding restriction on the White House's um, interference in the Department of Justice's uh, enforcement of these types of matters. And it goes on and on to talk about how even like Rudy Colludi Giuliani, probably after a handful of scotches and a few bottles of Chardonnay, you know, went so far and was running that this um, parallel legal Mm -hmm. sort of fight against uh, a whole slew of individuals creating this fake campaign of voter fraud. And all of this, if you take all of this, these nine separate times that it's mentioned that Trump was involved in it, and then reflect back to what I had said to the House Oversight Committee under um, you know, the, the great late mm-hmm. Elijah Cummings, and I had said, I know Donald Trump. And if, in fact, he loses the 2020 election, that there will never be a peaceful transfer Mm -hmm. of power. That's two and a half years before the January 6th insurrection. And so many people, even to this day, reporters call me and say, how the hell did you know? And how is it that you figure out, you know, eight out of 10 things about Trump, you know, in advance? And that's because Trump is not novel. Trump does not act in a way that is not consistent. He's like history Mm -hmm. repeating itself. I know the baby that is Donald Trump. I know exactly his mentality. He didn't want to be president. And I say this all the time on Maya Culpa. He wanted to be a fucking dictator. Folks, you got to get that through your head on just how scary these 2022 midterm elections are. If, in fact, Republicans take the House, the Senate, etc., and if, in fact, that they're able to somehow take the White House, somewhere along the line, Donald Trump will have a certain amount of power. And his goal in his four years was to create something very similar to what exists in Russia, which is exactly why he refused to ever criticize Putin. He wanted to be the Putin. He wanted to be the Kim Jong-un. And this wealthy class of individuals that he had surrounding him, that Mm -hmm. had supported him, that benefited financially from him, you know, quite a bit, they would be the oligarchs of America. So he's trying to recreate Russia. And fortunately, we escaped it this time. But what we start to see when you see these nine separate events with people like Rudy Giuliani, who wants to be one of those oligarchs. You see, when Donald sees Vladimir Putin, and the story is, of course, that he's the richest man in the world, he owns 25% of all of Russia, what do you think is going through Donald's fucking head? I want to be him. I could be the Vladimir Putin of America. 
Exactly. Why? I don't want to do branding deals. I've done those. I don't want to write a book. I've done that. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to have to do X, Y, and Z. I just want to tell people what they can and can't do, and collect twenty five percent off of Amazon, off of Facebook, off of Instagram, off of Google. All right, that's what he wants. He wants twenty five percent off of everybody's company, and he wants to be the richest man in the world because all he thinks about is how much money he's worth, which, of course, as you know, Going he just down. got kicked off the Forbes <laughs> list. And so, right. And so I think, I think his strategy, along with the folks that are working with him on that strategy, right. are failing and failing yeah. miserably. I think, I think that's exactly right. I mean, a lot of it, when you talk about the oligarchs, what it always hits me there without going too deep into this is that the people that he surrounded himself, uh, surrounded himself with and that then in turn were in a lot of cases put into positions of power in the administration. Some of them, or one of them in particular, still being there with with, uh, with Louis DeJoy at the post office. These are people who have a who have a private interest stake in seeing government. They don't want smaller government. They want to take chunks of the government, privatize it, and profit off of it. They just want to take the government, carve it up, and have it be privatized. That's what the oligarchs are in Russia. They basically took the whole Russian state carved it up into all the state-run entities and the, the the factories and the oil companies and the media companies and everything else. And those people that were close to the government were able to get these giant windfalls and have these huge, uh, you know, monopolistic or oligopolistic companies that they get to run. And that's yeah, that is an, that is exactly what the what this sort of cabal around Trump is really uh, trying to do. Thankfully, the legal people around him have not been. You know, you know, Rudy didn't really do a super job here. Uh, some of the other election people that he had didn't do a super job here. Uh, but we have to worry that they're going to do better next time. That's the kicker. Like, you know, well, that's always. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's always a big concern. Yeah, exactly. Now, take Lou, take Lou DeJoy for a second. Remember, when I was involved, I was despite being a Democrat, I was one of four individuals that constituted the Republican right. Finance Committee. Right? It was headed by yep. Steve Wynn, truly a, a really great guy. Right? To, to be on, to be honest with you, I happen to have liked Steve very much. It was Steve, myself as a vice chair. There was um, uh, Lou DeJoy was one, uh, another. And then, of course, you had Elliot Broidy. Now, mind you, they went right after Steve Wynn uh, with an issue that he had had at his hotels. Elliot Broidy, uh, not just one, but two different situations. One that I had assisted with him, which was um, a uh, infidelity scenario. Uh, the other, of course, which was the bigger one, is his actions on behalf of, I believe it was the Saudi government against Qatar and stealing some information and that whole claim, which I really don't even know how it ended up. And then, of course, there was Lou DeJoy, the only one who did not end up getting the shit kicked out of him, right? Then, of course, me going to prison. Um, So Lou DeJoy, as you stated accurately, is in this business. He, in essence, is is a competitor of the United States Postal Service. And now he's running it. And if you see some of the things that he's talking about doing, which is slowing down the mail, increasing, increasing the cost, 
you know, per, you know, per item. This yeah. is crazy. This is crazy shit. But not if not if you're doing right. what you're referring to, which is to take over, to privatize yeah. the United States Postal Service. So that he can turn so that it ends up getting sold off to private interests for profit. And then one of the one of the most longstanding and really beloved of American governmental institutions in all of American history. You know, it, the, the U.S. Postal Service was the first truly national postal service in the world. Uh, it has a really wonderful history. And the fact that it's been so cheap and affordable for people for so long, I can go on and on about this, but it's, it's, it's really a travesty. But this, is, this has happened throughout a lot of the different uh, federal agencies. Now, this is something that the, uh, the author Michael Lewis uh, wrote about in The Fifth Risk. Uh, and you know, the same thing was going on with the National Weather Service. Was was uh, there, there's a whole bunch of different agencies here where the people that were put in charge with it are exactly the ones who want to actually murder that agency and then see it all get privatized uh, so that they can profit off of it. That's the whole. That's the whole ball game. Yeah, I mean, it's it's truly amazing. Now, I could understand taking somebody who's been in logistics, right? I think his company was uh, New Breed Logistics. And the guy was there for a long time, from 83 to 2014, as the CEO of this company. I could understand he if he out was of, out of that right. business. He's not. But he's not. It's not like he's retired. He's not. And then, he, I, you know, he, this is something he's doing to give back, in, in, you know, as a sort of second chapter toward the end of his career. No, 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 no. He was still making money off of all of this as he was engaging in these public decisions and and really ruining the uh, really ruining the postal service. So, and it continues to this day. You know, I I know it's a complicated thing with the board of governors, and it's not just so simple for for Biden to wake up one day and, and kick him to the curb. But past a certain point, you have to try to figure out how to how to fix this because this is it, it's also it has very 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 key and just sort of sharp. Uh, impact on what's going to happen with elections because more and more voting because of COVID, because of people's preferences, more and more voting is occurring by mail. So this is not just a sideline to say, oh, you know, people don't send letters anymore because of the internet. No, 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 no. This is vitally important to American democracy over the coming years to make sure that we still have a public postal service that's affordable and reliable for people so that they get their ballots and they can send them in. It's vital. It's absolutely vital. So this is this is far from a trivial thing. There's a reason why people have been so upset about it. And that's why Merrick Garland, and I don't know how many people have been saying the same thing that I have. He has to step yes. up and he has to start doing things or he should <laughs> yes. get the fuck out. I don't know a nicer yeah. way to put it. Either step up or step out. But And I don't say it like... like on Maya Culpa, when I first learned that Merrick Garland was going to be our attorney general, I could not have been happier. This is a guy with, you know, real conviction, with real capabilities, and everything that I had wanted to see him accomplish in the first, whether it was 100 days, in the first 180 days, right? Now I think we're at mm -hmm. 300 days. Right. I'm seeing none of it. None of it. Lou DeJoy cannot be the postal uh the the you know uh, right. the postmaster general he just cannot be anymore there are too many conflicts right. of interest now conflicts of interest as you're well aware did not exist in the trump administration right. 
Hence, of course, Ivanka and Jared, as we like to call them here, Javanka, right, as senior advisors while he's running off to Saudi Arabia and Qatar in the Middle East in order to refund uh, you know, him money on companies. 666 Fifth yep. Avenue. Fin- yeah, finances Of course, uh, right? Yeah. This is improper. So, right. So there is absolutely no, no. disconnect between that and what's going on now with, with DeJoy, it is a conflict of interest, just like Javanka was, just yeah. like others were, and it needs to come to an end. And Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco and the DOJ need to start stepping up. There are, in my mind, at least a dozen investigations right. that should already have been started. And if I was some of these, you know, congressmen, you know, that's what I love about members of Congress. They get up, they pound their fucking fists onto the table, Republican and Democrat, right? Especially now that the Democrat has the control, they pound their fists. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Okay, great. You just got your five minutes of MSNBC, CNN, and airtime. Now go fucking do something about it. Go you know, and they, oh, I filed a FOIA request and we're still waiting. I right. heard this from Eric Swalwell, you know, uh, regarding right. a matter that deals with me. Oh, I filed yeah. a FOIA request. Oh, yeah? Well, that's six months. Yeah. That's eight months ago. Did you right. get anything back? No. If I was a congressman, I would walk into the FOIA office. I'd show them the little pin on my, on my lapel. And I would say, you don't leave here tonight until I get right. the documents that I need. It's a congressional, not request. Request was when I sent it in paper formally. Now it's a demand. You don't walk out of here. And if you do, I'm going to your boss and you're fired. Go right. get me what I'm asking. That's how you do it. By the way, that's how the Trump administration would have acted had they wanted right. the FOIA documents. They would have walked in there. They would have gotten that fat ass Bill Barr would have walked and said, I'm, you know, I'm the attorney general. I want the documents right. before you leave today. I don't care. I don't care what time you leave. I want the documents, you know, before you leave. That's what they would have done. But no, this is like, oh, let's all fucking kumbaya, hug and have, you know, have a nice chamomile tea and cookies together. That's not, you're dealing with coming off the most corrupt presidency that this country has ever seen. And you want to sit there and you want to you know, sit by a campfire making, you know, fucking <laughs> s'mores. This, this is no good. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you hit the nail right on the head. It's it, I, the degree to which, uh, you know, Congress is really, you know, look, it's a combination of I, I don't know who's being slower on all of this, DOJ or Congress. It's, it's like they're having a race to see who's the slowest and least effective of the two of them. Uh, maybe I'm going to be proven wrong here in a bit, but like right now, I don't see any teeth on either of them. You know, right now, I'm part of me has been hoping that what DOJ and Garland are doing is they're doing their work as most prosecution work is done is under the hood. It is in secret until they actually come out with an indictment. Grand jury, grand jury, uh, grand jury proceedings are secret. Could there be actually something going on under the hood that we are not aware about with DOJ? Maybe. I hope so. It would be nice, but right now we don't have any sign that they're doing anything and then Congress, yeah, they get on TV. They've been issuing these subpoenas. But I think the biggest thing right now is when are we going to see those get enforced? Are those actually meaningful? You know, the word subpoena, the, the Latin phrase sub poena is under penalty. So if it's not, a, if there's no penalty, then it's not really a subpoena. It's, a, it's just a suggestion. 
Maybe you should send the documents. Maybe you should appear before our committee. If there's no teeth, then why did you do it? Why did we even bother sending a subpoena to Mark Meadows or to Steve Bannon? Like this doesn't, it doesn't matter. So the question in my head is, is when are we actually going to start seeing some real action where if these guys are not actually testifying or, or, or producing documents, they go to jail, which is what should happen when you defy a subpoena. And when is that, when is that actually going to happen? And when is DOJ going to impanel a grand jury? You know, going back to the tweet of mine that you quoted a bit ago, when are they actually going to start turning some of this into impaneling a grand jury? Look, we're going to learn a lot more about the planning of January 6th, but there's a couple of things that I think are now ripe for a grand jury. One of them is this conspiracy to get DOJ to say that the election had problems, the whole situation with Rosen and Clark and Donahue and Mark Meadows. That situation now is ripe for a grand jury, number one. Number two is what we just saw with the Trump legal team at his direction going to Bannon and Meadows and all those guys and saying, don't comply with the congressional subpoenas. We are advising that you should be taking, that you should be citing executive privilege and that you should not be uh, doing this. That, in my view, is obstruction of justice. And there should at least be an investigation into whether or not it fits that. But the, it, but the DOJ coup, that conspiracy, that's the one that's right. We don't need to know what Trump's role was with Ali Alexander yet. I think we're going to find out. We don't need to know how that ties into the different people that were members of Congress who were in on the January 6th insurrection, whether that was Biggs or Brooks or Gosar or Lauren Boebert, any of those people. We're going to find out about that. We can. There's more charges that can be brought against Trump for that stuff later if he ties into all of that, which I think he... I, I think we're going to find out that he did. But this part with DOJ just alone, just as a self-contained thing, is ripe for a grand jury right now. We don't need to do more fact-finding. There's enough to impanel a grand jury. The bar to impanel a grand jury to start an investigation is not that high. I'm not saying issue an indictment tomorrow. You have to go through the process. There is a process to do this. But if we don't start the process, then it's never going to happen. So when are we starting the process? Okay, first of all, I believe that they should have yes, already impaneled absolutely. the grand jury in, in a multitude of cases, which kind of, this brings me to the next question yep. I really wanted to ask you, Tristan. The report from the Senate Judiciary Committee is really so fucking damning and frankly terrifying that if this doesn't serve to finally take down Donald, then we're, I think we're really truly screwed as a nation. And what it shows is that it'll be proof that you can literally get away with any crime against the Constitution if you're brazen enough and will enable somebody like Trump's worst instincts for 2024. Right. My biggest problem is that I fear that the Biden administration, and as I stated before, and Merrick Garland, are not willing to just take off the gloves and actually tear out this cancer once and for all. Now, I know your view because it's mm -hmm. very similar to mine. But how do you think that this plays out? And what would you do if you were suddenly made the attorney general? What would be the first I, action the that first you would action do? The first action I would do is I would uh, basically completely redo the normal organization of DOJ and appoint an, a task force that would reported directly to me to uh, that would be focused on January 6th. Uh, I would actually not do it with like a press conference, I, but the key is that the actions that would get taken would get out because it would be about impaneling grand juries. It would be about uh, grand jury subpoenas going out. 
but I would have a, uh, it would be reporting directly to the AG, a task force to, to dig into it holistically. Right now, you've got a bunch of the individual U.S. attorney's offices around the country have been prosecuting the, the, the small fish, the actual guys who were running around storming the Capitol. And some of those prosecutions have been more successful than others. Some of the sentences have just been ridiculously light. Uh, others are looking a little bit more robust. That work continues. So that part's been going well, but you're just putting the pawns in prison. You're not actually going after the guys who really ran it. And that's got to change. So I don't know when that's going to happen. But yeah, if I were in charge of all of that, that's the first thing I would do is I would have an executive level task force reporting directly to the attorney general that would be going and doing that. That would be run out of Washington and you'd have, you'd have, you know, conference calls twice a week, you know, set up a whole basically war room and a, and a whole set of, uh, and a whole set of procedures to make sure that you're constantly just focusing, hammering hard every day. This is the greatest threat to American sovereignty since the civil war. And it needs to be treated as such, you know, not the, the cold war, the Russians never got this embedded into American government and life. You know, we never had this kind of a threat from the Germans or the Japanese during World War II. Thankfully, those wars were, were fought elsewhere except for Pearl Harbor, of course. But, you know, it's not like we had like, as you put it, a cancer kind of eating away at the very fiber of the American government. We never had those problems before. This is the worst it's ever been since the Civil War. And it needs to be treated as such as a national emergency. This isn't, and we're not fighting. We're not, we're not the other guys where we're going to put thugs in the streets. We're going to do this with due process, but it means that our foot soldiers this time are, our foot soldiers now are the lawyers and they need to be, it, it, we need to, it needs to be on a wartime footing, but for litigation and investigation and prosecution. But that's the kind of mentality that we need to have is that this is war. You know, it's also, uh, it's also criminal justice. We're not actually going to do it with, with, with guys with guns. We're going to do it with guys with subpoenas. We're going to do it with guys and women and suits going to court and, and filing these cases and doing the indictments uh, and making sure that we're actually putting these guys in prison where they belong. And not only that, that after they have been convicted, then the Congress should be going and banning them from any future office holding in any federal or state capacity, which is under the 14th Amendment, Section 3 which specifically allows that anybody who held any office, federal or state, civil or military, that took an oath to defend the Constitution, that then participated it or gave aid or comfort to an insurrection, is, can then be banned from ever holding any office ever again. And that, in my view, is that's the ultimate objective, is that if these people actually committed or participated in or conspired to help an insurrection against the United States, not only should they be going to prison, but they should be banned from any office holding of any type ever again in their lives. And that has to happen. And we need to treat this as a, a war by other means. It's a war of, of law. It's a war over the rule of law. It's a war over democracy. And if we don't treat it that way, then we're going to lose it. It's all going to be gone. That's absolutely true. And for me, I like what you're saying, but I would take it a notch, mm -hmm. a notch higher. I would impanel as the attorney general, 10, 12 mm -hmm. special counsels 
10 to 12 Robert Mollers to handle yeah. different topics. One of which is, as you stated, the January 6th insurrection. Because let me say this to you. There's no reason that you can't have a dozen special counsel investigations going on all at the same time. And like what you said, I would constantly be holding press conferences. Because let me tell you what Donald Trump has done to this country. Donald Trump has shown this country and others that there are no consequences for violating a subpoena. There are no consequences for anything as long as you are within his realm of protection. I don't care if it's the Matt Gaetzes of the world. Let's just take a look at somebody like Mm -hmm. Dan Scavino, who I know for Mm -hmm. almost two decades, right? Dan Scavino was the general manager to Trump Briarcliff, Mm -hmm. the golf course, who ultimately got fired and then came to me. He then became, for free, Trump's social Mm -hmm. media guru, I don't know where he got the training from. And then he's become some sort of deputy chief of staff simply because there was mm-hmm. nobody else around. Well, where is Dan now in order to answer the subpoena that was he's due yesterday? He's in hiding. Are you going to tell me that our incredible law enforcement can't find Dan fucking Scavino? Seriously? And where is he? It's not like the FBI can't track this guy down. They can. They just haven't been ordered to do so. That's the clear implication. I'm, that's exactly, you took the words right out of my mouth. If Merrick Garland, if the president would demand that the FBI, you know, go find him, all you probably need to do is go to Mar-a-Lago. You'll find him sitting at the bar, eating a fucking Mar-a-Lago burger and stuffing his face, right? That's, that's really where he probably is. Now, you know, just to move on, Tristan, I worry that the window for investigating and ultimately prosecuting Trump is actually incredibly small. Now, should the Democrats lose the House and Senate in these midterms, much of their investigative power and the leverage will vanish making it all more necessary to strike now. You got to strike now. If you would, discuss this with me and my listeners. Yep. Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's two things going on there, I think, Michael. One is you've got, obviously, now look, they're not really using it that well yet because they're not enforcing the subpoenas that they got. But right now, the House and Senate can 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 get witnesses to come in. Some of them are coming voluntarily. People like Jeffrey Rosen, thank God, uh, came in and testified voluntarily. Uh, you know, we we see those Senate and uh, the Senate and House have been have been doing their investigatory work. So that is a key, uh, you know, venue and weapon to be able to say, okay, we've got other people, other staff, other attention that's getting drawn to these uh, these investigations. More investigatory bandwidth, if you will, is being deployed. So that's very helpful. Uh, if 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 the Democrats lose one or both houses next year, then you're going to lose that. That'll be gone. Uh, the other threat, though, is that, OK, well, let's just say that the, that the Democrats do lose one or both houses next year. They would still have the White House for a little bit longer or, or maybe more. Uh, but if DOJ is still trying to investigate these uh, these crimes and these, uh, you know, these schemes, but you have Republicans running one or both houses of Congress, they then can turn around and make life difficult for DOJ. They can say, oh, we're cutting your funding. Oh, we're freezing your funding. Oh, we can't, you can't hire any more people because Congress controls the budget. And we've already seen, as we're seeing right now in Washington, what a mess that is. 
with being able to get any kind of budget passed. And that's with Democrats with a majority. It's going to be even worse if they're in the minority. Uh, so typically what we've seen in the past 15 years or so, uh, in the time, I mean, I've been a lawyer for 18 years now. In my During my career, you've seen the ups and downs of DOJ hiring based on Republicans or Democrats being in control of the House. If Republicans have the House, DOJ suddenly ends up in a hiring freeze. Why is that important? Because then it means that they can't have the resources, they can't put the, they can't put the people on it to actually drive forward these prosecutions, assuming they're even bothering to do that, mind you. So there, it's a dual threat to say that the Demo Democrats might lose the House or the Senate. It's both that they'll lose that investigatory power from the Hill, but also that if you put Republicans in charge of the Hill, then it could actually make DOJ's life a lot harder. Uh, and mind you, DOJ then runs all of the U.S. attorney's offices. So if they're under a hiring freeze too, uh, and they can't add more people when they invariably lose people, uh, it's going to make it a lot harder for them to do their jobs. The big secret about any of these offices, all the way through to DOJ in Washington, the Southern District in New York, the New York Attorney General's office where I used to work, the Manhattan DA's office, all of these places are actually shockingly underfunded. Uh, if you go to their offices, as you have, you know, they, it's like, it's very dumpy a lot of the time. You're like, this is your office? You know, you're this big, bad set of prosecutors and you work out of this really dumpy space. Uh, you know, they, and the people are not paid super great. Uh, you have a lot of very dedicated public servants, but it's actually understaffed and under-resourced. That's a lot of why these cases move a lot slower than people want them to, because these uh, investigatory and prosecutorial authorities are actually really uh, a lot smaller and less well-resourced than you might think or might expect. It'll be even worse if Republicans are back in charge of the Hill. So there is definitely a, a real risk factor there. The, the clock is ticking. There's no doubt. Yeah, there is no doubt. And, you know, um, you bring up a really good point, because the nicest thing about their offices is the glass door that has the logo of the office on it. Everything else in there is really, it's shitty. It looks like a, a broken down warehouse and so on. But I tell you where I have a little bit of, of an issue when it comes to this. While the place may be dumpy and shitty looking, what they do have a nice looking shields inside their wallets. And yes, that shield provides them with prosecutorial immunity. And you're right, the pay is shit until like six of the prosecutors on my line, six of them mm -hmm. went to white glove law firms making yeah. seven figures a year. And yeah. one, Robert Kazami, that fucking scumbag, ends up at Guggenheim Partners. Uh, right? Yeah. Ends up at Guggenheim Partners. Why? Why? And each one of them writes on their biography, successfully prosecuted, biggest 21st century case, U.S. versus Michael Cohen. There was no prosecution. Now, you may call it a prosecution. It was really a hostage video. They put a gun to my wife's head and said, in 48 hours, you either plead guilty or we're filing an 85-page indictment against you that's going to include your wife. And I will never put her 
in harm's way because I had no idea what the hell they were even talking about. I didn't find out until the day before what the charges even were. They have the power and that's the biggest problem. And they don't care about legitimacy of the case. They only cared about their own upward mobility and getting into that white glove firm for that seven figure, you know, a year deal. Because I, I assure you, when they claim that it was a prosecution, it's not a prosecution at not in the slightest. Instead, this was all about their own upward mobility. That's how that's how I see it. And that's what my next book is going to be written about as we now trying to speak to some of them to understand how is it that his case is 48 hours from soup to nuts off of a one page information. There was never a single document filed. It was off of a one-page information to which they ended up writing the allocution. But that'll be for another day when I bring you back on to discuss the next book, Department of mm -hmm. Injustice, which I'm working on as we speak. But let me take you to this place, um, Tristan. You famously led, and a lot of my listeners are saying, well, why are you speaking to Tristan Snell? You know, who is he? What's it all about? You famously led the civil prosecution against the Trump organization in the Trump University case. Um, at the time, I think it was Eric Schneiderman was the attorney yes. general. And while you had scores of witnesses who gave heart-rendering testimony, you said that what truly matters in prosecuting Trump in these type of matters are the documents, the receipts, capable of delivering what testimony cannot, undisputable proof. Yep. Now, if you would, discuss this with me and my listeners as it relates to what the January 6th committee might turn up, as well as what has been reported to the Senate Judiciary Committee and stated in their report. Where do you think that we'll find the smoking gun that finally breaks Donald Trump's back? Oh, gosh. Yeah, let's see. I mean, look, I think that there's a couple of things going on here. One is, and I know I know you and I very much see eye to eye on this part, the, the fact that the you know, it's the documents that really matter much more than the witnesses. If we're talking about the Trump Organization case uh, with the Manhattan DA and the, and the New York AG's office, uh, there's actually two cases, by the way, there. There's the criminal case and there's the civil case, and we can talk about that later. But, you know, there's been so much attention paid to Alan Weisselberg, so much. And, you know, and yes, it's important to sort of focus on on his role. But the, the real kicker is that these kind of these white collar cases tend to be made more on the documents than they are on anything else, uh, because everything's in email or it's in Word docs or it's in Excel. There's a lot of a lot of Excel spreadsheets and ledgers that are going to be the, the that are going to tell the tale on that tax fraud case that's going on right now, for example. Uh, you know, that's where that's going to get made. The, the witnesses are, are key. Uh, I think, and I, I wrote in, in my one Washington Post op-ed that I think you're referring to, you know, I think I, I pointed to you as somebody that I thought could be a guide to, to all of that, because you, you need somebody who just understands the MO of how the Trump war worked, because it was not, still is not, a very large operation. The executive office of the Trump org is actually relatively small, not that many people. Uh, you just need somebody who was in the inner circle there that understands how it works, who can then maybe walk a jury through the context, the narrative around exactly what all these darn spreadsheets mean. Uh, and I do think that that's necessary. Now, look, we think that it really looks like Jeff McConney is probably cooperating. Uh, you know, I think that there's a good chance that we're going to see both uh, Calamari Sr. and Jr. cooperate to some degree or another. 
So I think that there are going to be other people who can help walk through this. Uh, but look, the, the documents can tell a lot of the story. And then the rest of it, if it goes to trial, is about good lawyering. Uh, and yeah, and having a couple of witnesses who can give color, who can sort of give the, who can actually tie it together with a narrative and a story to humanize all those documents. You need that. It, that part's important too. Uh, now, where are we going to find kind of a smoking gun here? Look, it's a little bit trickier with Trump because of the fact that he doesn't use email and he doesn't use text messages uh, by all accounts. That makes it a little tougher. Uh, but, you know, look, you, you know, because of you, we have we have what we have one recording from your time with the Trump organization. Uh, I believe there are others. Uh, I think there are others that are going to come out. Uh, I think that people's notes during meetings, those are admissible evidence. They're not as sexy as getting him on tape, uh, but those are those are often very helpful. I don't think we're going to get one smoking gun. I think that if we have a whole lot of things all together and it's very tightly knit together with a lot of witnesses who can testify as to these things, uh, you know, look, the fact that on the to shift over to the back to the DOJ conspiracy, the fact that we've got Jeffrey Rosen being willing to say exactly what happened, the fact that we've got Donahue who's willing to say exactly what happened, uh, you know, I think that they're going to, if anybody's minding the shop at all, there needs to be uh, pressure applied to Jeffrey Clark to say, look, you worked with him on this. You're on the hook. You are, you, you're, you're, we believe you're guilty of all of these different federal offenses. You're guilty of conspiracy. And you see what you can do to get him to cooperate. Uh, it, it's a combination of the documents that you can bring to bear, the witnesses. You know, it, it, you have to come at it from a bunch of different sides. That's what we did, you know, with the Trump University case. Really, once the, the key there is that we had the combo of the accounts from the customers that had been through it, the consumers, the students, and that they matched up with. We got the transcripts of the seminars, and that was really what made our case. Uh, and then there were some other pieces, too, that I can get into. But once we had those two together, uh, you know, documents can really do a lot of the damage when you have when you're talking about prosecuting a business whose job it is to keep records of everything and everything's digital breadcrumbs. OK, Stuart, so let me take you away from your current position, sure. um, you know, as uh, Main Street Law. And I yep. want to throw you back into the AG's office right now. I yep. want to put you back into the district attorney's office. You're our New York AG. You're our New York district attorney. And something that I would turn around and say to you, you don't need to kill 10 people to be a murderer. One is enough. Right. And this notion that there's not documentary evidence in order to establish a crime may not put the guy away for a hundred years. Maybe it's only five. Maybe mm -hmm. it's a little more. Maybe it's three. Like what I ended up getting simply because the president got his pecker pulled by a porn star. I end up going to prison for it. Right. But I want to, I, the documents that I provided, let me just give you a fast 30 second overview and then tell, ask you your opinion, how you would prosecute it similarly to what you did at Trump University. So here's what we know. The personal financial statement that I provided, that I testified both before the House Oversight Committee, provided the originals to the various different offices and so on for a period of three years, all show tax fraud, bank fraud, wire fraud, 
misrepresentations to banks, insurance mm-hmm. fraud, etc. Yep. Okay. Isn't that enough to right. create an indictment already? Isn't it enough to show I'm not asking anybody to take my word for it because Trump did an incredible job in disparaging me and making me seem unreliable, which I am not. Every statement that I had made to the House Oversight Committee, I backed up with documentary evidence, with checks, with documents, with reports, and so on. Why is this not enough to already have the indictment? We have it of the Trump Organization. They've indicted Alan Weisselberg. Why is this not enough to go after the CEO and his children? I think it is. I just think I would go back to, and I I know that it frustrates folks a lot when I say things like this, but a lot of it is, I think they're pedaling as fast as they can uh, to get to get their arms around all of this. We know through the Weisselberg uh, case and the and the indictment there when they went to court the other day, we know through what's been, uh, you know, what facts we're getting out of that whole situation, that uh, the defense counsel were provided with 3 million pages of material that the prosecution relied upon. Uh, that's a lot of, that's a lot of material. Uh, that's only what they provided to the defense. That means they've got way more than that. Uh, I just think that the sheer quantity, this is a case weirdly where the sheer quantity of fraud and the sheer quantity of evidence of fraud over 15, 20 years is so huge that I think they've just had a, it's been a really, really tough job, like getting their arms around that mountain of material and actually being able to distill it down into something that can be an indictment, into something that they can actually take to trial if they have to. Uh, I think that's a lot of it. It's, it's not as sexy of an answer that it's just like, oh, they just have a lot of work to do. But it's that's but, a lot of it. And, but Trist, yes, I bet you that team is a lot smaller than everybody thinks it is. It might only be like six or seven people. You know, the Trump University case, we were not nearly as much under a microscope. He wasn't president then. No one was expecting us to bring it. It was kind of quiet until all of a sudden we filed it. That it was basically I wasn't the only one on it, but m- most of the heavy lifting was done by me. That was it. There, there wasn't like a huge team of other people investigating Trump University. It was mostly it was me and then a couple of other people were sort of part time on it. But the only person who had like primary who had the primary job of like, OK, this is your main case. Go, 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 go kick ass was me. That was it. You know, and, and then there were a number of other people that definitely worked on it and did a lot of really great work. I was part of a really fantastic team. But in terms of a lot of the like heavy lifting, it was me. I bet you that there's really only a handful of people that are really doing a lot of the work on that case. So I don't think that it's a matter of, oh, there's not enough to indict them. I think that there's so much that then the challenge is, how do you make that something that a court can understand, that a jury can understand? And that's hard to do. And then they're trying to negotiate with all of these witnesses to see if they can get them to cooperate. So I think that's a lot of what's going on. I know that people wish it were going faster, but I, I do believe in in the work that they're doing there. I think that they I, I know who some of those folks are that are doing it. Uh, some of them are former colleagues of mine that I worked with personally. These are folks who are really, really good prosecutors. I believe that they're doing a good job. I just think that they have a huge task that they have been carving through. But Tristan, didn't you just now 
corroborate the statement that I made. You don't need to kill 10 people that's, in that's order true. to be a murderer. Let me give you just a little personal. I handed over a thousand pages, plus or minus, to the New York District Attorney's Office, to the Attorney General's Office, and others. Mm -hmm. And those 1,000 pages are more than enough within which to indict Donald, mm -hmm. Don Jr., Ivanka, Eric, and others. Alan Weisselberg, Matt Calamari, and others. Alan yep. Garten, and others. Why? Why do you care about these three, four, five million pages that they were able to get? You don't need it. All you need is the gun, the body, and you're done. Well, that's There's the no difference, need. Though. That's the difference, Michael, is that it isn't violent crime where it is that simple. You've got once you've got you, 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 you've got the gun, you've maybe got some eyewitnesses or you've got security footage or something like that. So, you know, the guy was there. You know, you've got a body. You've got a gun. You've got fingerprints done. Boom, boom, boom. You've done. You got it. It, the, the white collar stuff, there's usually a lot more moving parts. There's a lot more documents. I know that it, it would be nice if you could say, well, they've got three or five million documents. They only need three or 5,000 of them, and they probably can indict those guys. I don't think it's that simple, unfortunately. But I also would say this, and this is key. With Trump University, mind you, we're, again, we had – it was way – we were we felt pressure to get it right because we knew that Trump was so litigious. We knew that he had a megaphone. We knew he would fight back, but he wasn't. This was, mind you, back in uh, it was it was at the point that you were still there. This was twenty thirteen, right? Twenty thirteen. Uh, I actually think you came to the office once, right? You, you we, we were actually across the table from each other one time, but that was twenty thirteen. You know, Trump was a little bit in politics at that point, but not really. Uh, we still felt a lot of pressure to get it right. The word that I got from my people, the people I reported to, my bureau chief, my division chief, the executive office of the AG, was we cannot fuck this up. We have to, it has to be perfect because we're going after a we're going after a guy who will counterpunch and hard. And he did. He 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 filed an ethics complaint against Schneiderman. He accused Schneiderman of political corruption. Yes, yes, I was you know, involved was a, in the drafting of that J. Cope right, document, which never right. saw the light of day. Cuomo right. ended that's up whole, doing that, absolute. That's a whole nother. That's a whole, that's other, a whole, that's other, a whole other podcast other for another time. But but the point is, we knew that that we knew that that the Trump team would counterpunch. We knew that Trump was going to fight back hard. So we felt pressure. We spent. Three years working that case before it actually resulted in a, in, a, in the civil prosecution that we brought in August of 2013. We about two and a half years, and that was a way smaller case, way 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 smaller than the Trump Organization tax fraud case. But we still spent two and a half years working on it. I'd say the last nine months of that were just polishing and polishing and polishing and polishing. And while we were in the process of trying to engage in discussions with you and, and your team, the legal team at, at, at Trump Org, to see if maybe we could settle the case, which didn't end up happening. Um, what I'm trying to say is that the, the degree to which in that situation you feel as a prosecutor so much pressure to get it right and to make sure that your case is as perfect as it can be is immense. And I just feel like these guys, even though you'd like to think that they could make it simpler and make it something like don't prosecute all the crimes, just like find something that you can go at them right away. I think that this thing is so big that they're having trouble. Te they, they did tease out a part of it, Michael. They did the indictment regarding the uh, the, uh, the the taxable 
benefits, uh, not taxable benefits, you know what I mean, the 1099 payments to, to Weisselberg uh, and to others. That, that the, the indictment that happened in June, that they did. They took one piece of it and they managed to push that part out the door. So I think Tristan, let me just others, say this. But I think there's so much and so much pressure to get it perfect. I think that's what we're seeing. That's my take. Right. And one of the things that you may remember during that uh, Trump University scenario mm -hmm. was we had gotten a tip off that the complaint was coming. So we created that 98%approval.com website and we mm -hmm. took the steam out of the attorney general's office. I know the game plan. Mm -hmm. Why? Because for the most part, I created it. Right. And so when I'm sitting with, with the DA in the AG's office now, and I'm explaining to them, this is what you need. And there is no defense to it. Just use as an example, Seven Springs, $290 million valuation on a property he bought for 6.2 that at best is worth 40 right. and puts that into a PFS. Well, let me tell you, that charge is 100 times worse than what they were charging me with. Right. And yet I got three years. And the PFS was created by Mazers. So put Donald Bender from Mazers on the stand. You now have Alan Weisselberg. And I will testify that Weisselberg went ahead and was the one changing the numbers to give it to, to them. I mean, there's so much there into it. And again, you don't need, in my opinion, a thousand of these charges. It's yeah. bank fraud. It's wire fraud. And I could walk them through because I was there for all of it. And the defense that the defenses that they would have, I know the I know what they're going to bring up, so I know how to counter it in advance. That's what I'm hoping. But I want to just jump into something and ask you this yeah. for a second. In a tweet the other day, you wrote that Ali Alexander is Trump's Joel Greenberg. What information do you think that he possesses? I love that because you know I have an absolute disdain for Matt the fucking scumbag Gates, right? Do you uh, think you know? Um, Will Mr. Stop the Steal start to squeal for the January 6th committee? And if so, you know, could he hold the key to connecting the rally to the larger insurrection? I think that he is a very interesting witness to go after because, you know, we already have some indication uh, that that. that we already got some indication out of him that that, that he was working with with uh, with representatives Biggs and Brooks and Gosar. Uh, you know, put it this way: I just my read on him is I think he'll throw people under the bus. I don't know if he's as loyal of a foot soldier uh, to to Trump at the end of the day. And of course, Trump, you know, like with you, I mean, he takes people who were loyal foot soldiers and, 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 you know, makes them suddenly question all of that because he's not loyal back. So I'm not saying that some of these other people like Meadows are going to stay on his side forever. They may not, but I don't know if Alexander's ever been, Alexander's not been like an inner circle Trump guy. I don't see him necessarily having that like degree of personal loyalty to Trump and to, and to that team in the same way. I just don't see it. So I think Alexander is somebody who, very much could suddenly start pointing a lot of fingers to try to save himself uh, and and try to get out from under uh, the, the the serious charges that I think are going to be brought against them if people have the courage and the dedication to make them. Uh, but I, and I will say, you raise a good point with like Seven Springs. Why not separate out some of these properties and say, just pick one 
and bring that. Maybe that's what they're about to do. I mean, maybe the maybe maybe we're going to see a, a number of sort of like smaller indictments brought up to maybe a bigger one later. I don't know. I hope you're right. But you know, look, maybe there is a way that they could be doing that, uh, or they might be trying to do it all in one bite. But I see your point that, that if you know why why do it all in one big case? Or, you could or for example, ones. Sh- sure. Or for example, Tristan, the Stormy Daniels hush money payment. It's on tape, for God's sakes. I mean, you yeah. have the yeah. man's you have the man's voice telling me he's not me, president anymore. You, the right. whole thing was that you have this stupid OLC memo from DOJ that says you can't indict a sitting president, which in my view is total bullshit. That should be gotten rid of. That is a internal Department of Justice policy. It is not something that it's not law. It's not a Supreme Court ruling. There's no rule. There's no law. There's no case law that says you can't indict a sitting president. It's bullshit. But let's put that aside for a second. He's no longer president. So all the things that you couldn't indict him for while he was president, why aren't you indicting him now? You know, it's ridiculous that you went to prison for that and he hasn't gone to prison for it. That's insane. And the the Southern District and the Southern District dropped it, stating that they didn't have enough to make a case on it. But, you know, Tristan, one of the things it's me neither, because, like I said, they were all looking out for their own careers. But as I said to you at the beginning, the hour goes by very, very quickly. I have one last question for you. Right. And it's switching gears a little bit here. So. Last weekend, 60 Minutes report featuring Facebook whistleblower Francis Hogan discussing how the company harms teens, girls, mental health and profits from outrage precipitated a worldwide outage where all of Facebook's platforms were unavailable for several hours, Facebook, Instagram, etc., Now, this comes on the heels of reports that Zuckerberg struck a secret deal with Trump to turn a blind eye Mm -hmm. to disinformation if the Trump administration agreed not to regulate the social media giant. Now, you theorized, perhaps in jest, perhaps not, that the outage may have been on purpose to give Facebook time to scrub internal company emails and memoranda and make it impossible for employees to save or print emails by locking everyone out. Discuss this with me and what sort of reckoning is in store for Facebook, if any at all. Yeah, I mean, I don't, of course, I don't know that that's true. I am just theorizing and speculating there. But it's it was very it was a very fishy coincidence that it's the biggest outage they've ever had in 13 years of business. Even when they were a startup, they were never down for that long, not even close. I think the most they'd ever been down before was like an hour. Uh, I don't believe for half a second with all the redundancies that they had built in and backup systems that that was uh, I I just don't believe that it was a mistake. I just don't. I think that there is I, I, I do believe that it was probably something they did on purpose. Now, what were they doing with that? Yeah, look, it would it's very convenient. It would be a very good time for them to then say, great, we're going to delete a bunch of emails. We're going to delete a bunch of internal company documents, all the stuff that got leaked to the Wall Street Journal that the, that the whistleblower had, so forth and so on. And that what's going on now is you've got the House Oversight Committee uh, that's already been doing investigating. They had uh, Hogan in. And, you know, as you know, there are things called document preservation requests and that as soon as a party is put on notice that there could be an investigation or lawsuit or prosecution that they are not to destroy any documents uh, or, or devices or anything else related to that matter 
And they could send that letter, the House Oversight Committee, to Facebook at any time. They may have done so already. I don't know. But at that point, they got to stop deleting all that stuff. They're not allowed to anymore. And if they get caught deleting after that, they're in big trouble, generally, usually. And what's really going to happen to Facebook here? I think you're going to start seeing a lot more scrutiny. That's what happens when you become the big guy on the top of the mountain. And, and, and then people start questioning how you got there and how you're using your power. You know, they are the, they are the railroads. They are Standard Oil. They are, you know, U.S. Steel, uh, uh, General Motors or whatnot of a prior era. You know, these companies, these tech companies are now the biggest companies in the world. And they're going to get some scrutiny. And now that the scrutiny turned up some things that look like they amount to some serious wrongdoing that they were knowledgeable about, you're going to invite more scrutiny. And I, I do think that both American and European regulators and investigators are going to be really looking at Facebook a lot more closely going forward. Uh, will that result in you know them being put out of business? Doubtful pay a lot of money, maybe, but they have a lot of money. So is that really going to make that big of a difference? You know, look, the, the, the actions that were taken against Microsoft with the antitrust case back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it didn't put Microsoft out of business. It didn't bring Netscape back to life, but it did get them to be less brazen with exactly how they were throwing their weight around with certain things. It did have an impact. I think that there is a degree to which Facebook can be checked and regulated more. Uh, and then there, part of that has got to be, uh, in, my, in my view, reforming Section 230 uh, federal law, which gives them immunity from uh, liability for their users' content so that they, uh, Facebook doesn't really need to worry about moderating. They're not going to face any liability for moderating or fail, failing to moderate. Uh, I don't believe you just end Section 230. I think that you basically exempt the largest tech companies from it and say you guys are not immune anymore, but smaller companies are, uh, so that you protect startups and mid-sized companies. But the, the, the big companies that can actually afford to uh, really pay for moderation should be forced to pay for moderation. But this is critical. One more thing I just want to add real, real quick, is that the other thing that should happen is regulation around Facebook and some of these largest tech companies to say they can no longer hide behind their terms of service where they say that there are mandatory arbitration clauses and clauses forbidding class actions that also effectively shield Facebook and these large companies from any kind of real accountability from their users. Facebook is effectively unsuable right now, basically, and that needs to change. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think like what they did going back to when I was a kid, I remember there was Ma Bell that they they broke right. it up. It's just too it big up. as a company. You got to break it up. Uh, there's too much misinformation, disinformation, and too much power in the hands of just one individual. But Tristan, let me thank you for joining me today. It's good to see you. Haven't seen you in many, many years. Uh, <laughs> I would like to say thank God, but as you know, I was away, so it wasn't like you could have seen me anyway. But I want to thank you for joining me on Maya Culpa today, and um, definitely going to have you back because this is not ending with either the DA's office, with the Attorney General's office, and... Let's see what happens. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. Hope you're back soon. And now for today's mea culpa. I know I keep saying that now is the time to stop Donald Trump, but let's be clear. The report from the Senate Judiciary Committee should be a wake-up call to everyone who thought that Democrats were overreaching or Trump was on his way out. 
The fact is Trump grows more and more emboldened the more he is allowed to escape accountability. The argument that Trump's nefarious plots failed so he is free of accountability is a familiar one. It was used by Republicans to excuse his abuses of power during his first impeachment on the grounds that Trump's plan to withhold military aid to Ukraine in return for the announcement of a criminal probe into Hunter Biden did not actually come to fruition. This essentially boils down a case that a president who seeks to thwart the Constitution is only guilty if he succeeds. This discounts, for instance, strong evidence that Trump repeatedly pressured officials in the Justice Department and in states like Georgia to overturn the election, a clear and staggering abuse of power. The courage and integrity of these officials was, in the end, all that stood between the United States and a lost democracy. But the near miss this time should not mean that officials subordinate to a president should be left exposed to such pressure in the future. The threat has not passed. Trump is busily endorsing candidates for Secretary of State positions in swing states like Georgia, Michigan, and Arizona who have supported his election lies. If they are elected, such officials could have huge influence over the 2024 election in which Trump could be a candidate and growing fears that any Republican effort to illegitimately seize power next time could work. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth.